Since 1970, Earth Day has been a reminder that this planet of ours is not only a great place to explore, but a precious gift to respect and care for. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. As a global traveler, I'm interested in finding ways we can connect with the unique characteristics of the places we visit. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're doing just that. Marty Essen is an everyday guy from Montana whose midlife crisis resulted in some great travel adventures. Despite collecting poisonous stings, bites, and bumps, Marty has a contagious enthusiasm for the natural world and will all be exposed in the hour ahead. There's nothing more nerve-wracking than canoeing over hippos for the very first time. Then we'll learn about some of the cultural and natural treasures that are on the endangered places list, places you just might want to see before it's too late. And we'll start with some practical advice on doing a home exchange. It's a proven way to save plenty while letting you really live like a local on your next vacation. There's enough adventure and wonders on our planet for everyone, and we'll be exploring some great options with abandon in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Marty Essen has taken his wife around the world, but to places most people would shudder to imagine. We'll find out just what kind of fun is really possible when you get up close and personal with the cool creatures on our hot planet. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with a call to one of our listeners who has a great budget tip for your next vacation. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And I want to talk about one of the great budget tricks for uh, travel and also one of the greatest ways to get intimate with a different culture, house swapping. Best way to learn about that is to talk to somebody who's done it a lot. I've got joining me Nicole Feist, who uh, lives in Manhattan, and she's done, I guess, 20 or 30 different home swaps, and uh, she's going to give us an insight into that. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. How many times have you uh, stayed in somebody else's home? Well, the first time I was eight years old, we went to see Monticello, but we didn't revisit it again until I was a homeowner, which happened in my 20s. Since then, I've done about 30 swaps. 30 swaps. And does that mean you've stayed in 30 different people's homes and then 30 people have come in and stayed in your apartment in Manhattan? Exactly. And actually, 34 different families have stayed in my apartment. And I have banked non-simultaneous exchanges with four of those families. I'll be using my half of the exchange at a later date, especially if people have second homes. It's not necessary to do the exchange at the exact same time. But it's got to equal out over the long term, is that right? Absolutely. And there was one woman who I had a swap arranged with who became pregnant and didn't want to fly. And every time my home is open, I write to her first on email to see if she's interested in coming. My half of the exchange occurred seven years ago, but I still feel a moral obligation to have her in my home. So for us who aren't really up to speed on this, what is this home exchange? How does it work? Well, you get to know people over email and phone. You're hopefully both members of a home exchange club. So the Home Exchange Club can verify your address and financial information. And then while I go to stay in your home for my vacation, at the same time, you come and stay in my home. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. And do the clubs kind of verify that it's safe and you're decent people, or do you just kind of take that leap of faith? Well, the clubs serve as a clearinghouse for feedback. Several clubs have feedback systems where people can rate the exchange that they experience. Other Home Exchange members serve as references. The clubs themselves don't actually guarantee that, that anyone is uh, above board, but they report that in over 50 years of home exchange, they have never had any sort of robbery or vandalism, anything like that. The worst thing that typically happens is a broken champagne flute or things like that, nothing major. So over the last 30 different strangers that moved into your home or your apartment in Manhattan for a little vacation, what's the worst experience uh, out of all those? Any? Well, we had a teacup from our wedding. We, we had a tea theme at our wedding, and someone broke it. But if I had put it on a higher shelf or if I had yeah. uh, put it away in a closet, it wouldn't have been accessible. And she had no idea that the teacup was from our wedding. Do you generally uh, keep in touch with these people, or those people are, like, out of your life now? No, we've, we've done home exchange repeatedly with some of the families. We did home exchange several times with people who lived in New Orleans before the hurricane, and... We like to maintain contact. Sometimes people swap again and again. It sounds just like a utopian sort of arrangement. What are some of the um, clubs that are the the leaders in the game? Sure. Well, just to let you know, I'm not affiliated with with any club. A lot of bloggers are blogging because they want to sell memberships in a particular club. I'm completely non-commercial at at my blog. The clubs that I really like are homeexchange.com. That's an easy one to remember. They're the largest club. They have over 14,000 members. 
and they're very innovative and have wonderful customer support. And I also like digsville.com because they have a good feedback system where people are rating each other in a sort of a more objective way. But I would point your listeners toward knowyourtrade.com. This is a new non-commercial site that actually has evaluated every single home exchange club in the world, given unbiased recommendations, and people can find any sort of club they like. They can even find clubs that are geared towards seniors only, gay and lesbian travelers only, that kind of thing. It doesn't seem like it would matter that much what kind of people are doing it because you're not really seeing those people. You're inhabiting their place when they go Absolutely. somewhere else. Absolutely, and most of the similarities between people would be more that homeowners tend to do this. You can do it if you have an apartment, but the people who do it tend to be more in their 40s and 50s. A lot of seniors do it as well. They tend to be homeowners, and they tend to be middle to upper class. Let's review those uh, websites again. There's homeexchange.com. That's easy to find. Digsville.com. How do you spell that? D-I-G-S-V-I-L-L-E. Uh-huh. .com. And then knowyourtrade.com. Right. The Better Home Exchange Clubs will offer either an extension of your membership or a money-back guarantee if you don't find a swap within the first six months to one year. So it costs a, it's a little investment to get into these clubs? Well, if you think about it, it's less than a hotel. It's usually about $50. That's nothing compared year. to the hotel costs you'd avoid, yeah. yeah. Now, does any money change hands when you do one of these swaps? There's not supposed to be money changing hands. You know, I've had people write to me and say, my home is worth a million dollars, and, you know, living in Manhattan, it, it, it's not really ever going to be comparable to a Manhattan apartment. What is comparable is your desire to be in that person's home area and their desire to be in yours. That inherently Right. makes the trade an equal one. Now, if you're living in Manhattan, everybody wants to come and, and crash at your place. If you're living in, I don't want to insult people in Fargo, but let's say you're living in Fargo. It doesn't quite have the draw of Manhattan. Can they play this game? Absolutely, and I address that on the blog, homeexchanger.blogspot.com. What people need to do is be aware that there are going, always going to be people who have family members, so they may want to come, say, to Fargo during the holiday period, but they should also be proactive. Every single state in the United States has a tourism bureau that they can look to to highlight special activities and, and attractions in their area. Ah. So if you live in Fargo, you might not be interested in mountain biking, but there might be people who are dying to mountain bike the fabulous lands around Fargo, and you could target that in your home exchange listing. You have a showcase in the club's website. Exactly. You have your own page that lists your home, and it usually offers you ideas about what to write. You know, describe your family, describe your home, what amenities do you offer. And in addition, you should always do photographs. That's the most important thing you can do. Mm. If you had a nice grand piano and somebody wants to play a nice grand piano, you'd put it on there. And you've done this for 30 times now, and really the worst thing is a broken teacup. So that's really a nice comment on uh, the quality of the people that that get involved in this. Well, you also have to use your, your spidey sense. You have to write to the people, call them, and make sure you feel comfortable with them. You can also talk to people they've swapped with in the past. So you do have that option to just get comfortable with them, and then if you just get the creeps, you can say, yeah, it's just not going to work. Yeah, and the only time I've had a bad experience in people writing to me was people who were members of a free home exchange club, right? and they didn't really seem to be familiar with the home exchange concept. So it is a culture or something that you need to embrace. Well, it's real backdoor travel. I mean, no one's putting a mint on your pillow. You're getting to know people who live the the real way that they live in, say, Europe. This is marvelous. I've I've seen the list of places that you've swapped, so it's domestic as well as international. Yeah, I've stayed in a canal house in Amsterdam and a place in Paris that was sort of a student, an art student's garret. Yeah, tell me about the garret. You actually could take that sort of persona. You're living in an artsy little uh, loft or something in Paris, huh? (laughs) Exactly. We would sit on her Juliet balcony with the sheer curtains blowing in the wind and watch the French people leaving the bar singing French drinking songs. I have no idea what they were saying. And you do take on sort of the life of the person you're swapping homes with. What an experience. Now, you stayed in Amsterdam in, in the red light district, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. Tell us about that. That, that got a little exciting at times. Um, but we were staying in a canal house, a real Amsterdam canal house with one of those narrow staircases and the bed set in the wall. It was a real piece of history. Now, do people swap pets and cars and memberships to clubs along with this? Well, for us, the cat care is one of the most important factors, and it in some ways limits us. People who are allergic don't want to obviously stay in a house with cats, but we love to have loner cats when we're on vacation. We love to take care of other people's 
cats and have a cat to pet. And we do provide passes to our gym, and we're staying in a beach house in Florida next month where the folks are going to give us passes to their fitness center and beach club. And cars? We can swap cars. It's a good idea to contact your insurance company and huh. make sure they're okay with that. Have you ever used somebody's car in conjunction with the place that you borrowed? I frequently used other people's cars, and because I live in Manhattan, people generally don't want to drive. But what I do is I provide transit passes for them. Do you have a little welcome book or a to-do list to sort of help people know how to run your place that you've built over time that is uh, an efficiency for your guests? Absolutely. You want to tell them how to find the fuse box in case there's a problem with the electricity. You want to tell them who your repair person is, if they get locked out, who can they contact. And just general niceties, like what restaurants you like in the area, when the local green market is, that kind of thing. And do you find that other people do the same thing? You've, you've gone to 30 different places over the years. Have they all um, been proactive in helping you get acclimated and accustomed to the environment? Absolutely. But it's interesting because people generally don't actually meet each other, as you said. I think I've met a handful of the actual exchangers. But you do get to know them over the email, and they leave either a sheet of instructions Sometimes it's a book. There's no set format. You literally don't meet these people because you are passing in the night, kind of, as you go to their place, they come to your place, and then you're there for this certain amount of time, and then you go right back. Exactly. But i got to say the Internet is a great resource. A gentleman recently contacted me, and simply by plugging his name into Google, I found that he used to be an assistant U.S. district attorney, and I found out where he worked, and I felt really comfortable about that. I'm speaking with Nicole Feist, and she runs a blog, which is just, this is her passion, so this is a non-commercial blog, and just to share the information, it's homeexchanger.blogspot.com, homeexchanger.blogspot.com, and we'll have all of uh, these websites that we've been mentioning and so on at our ricksteves.com website in our radio corner. Nicole, you have been in the Students Garret in Paris, in the Red Light District in Amsterdam, down to New Orleans for a jazz festival, You were also in the south of France in Nice? Absolutely. It was an amazing, crumbling mansion that the woman had renovated by creating an apartment downstairs. And we stayed in the apartment that looked out onto a beautiful garden. And beyond, we could see the ocean. It was wonderful. And uh, honeymooning in Barcelona? Yeah. We stayed in a compound that these people had that had a separate guest cottage. That's another option for people. They invited us into their home. I saw the ham with the hoof on the counter for the first time, and it was really an interesting cultural experience. This is the classic ultimate backdoor experience, and it's the super-budget option because it's essentially free, and you live for the price of groceries and your little incidentals, but you don't do it for the economy. I think it sounds just like a quality way to have a, a great cultural education and experience on your vacation. Well, also, you get so much more room. You get a washer-dryer off and a dishwasher. It's just a lot more comfortable. Nicole Feist from Manhattan. Maybe uh, I'm going to get involved and we'll, we'll swap apartments, all right? Oh, I'd love to go to Seattle. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Thanks. Thank you so much. Sure. Bye-bye. Connect with us anytime at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. Up next, Marty Essen shares some of his adventures as he focuses on the wild and wildlife on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to do a little adventure travel. Uh, You know, I've just had a 
personal curiosity about wild nature experiences high up the Amazon or going into the frozen natural wonders of the Antarctic or getting bit by a leech? How about going to sleep under a thatched roof filled with noisy little geckos or staring down an angry hippo? These are things you just don't find in Europe. you got to go farther away to find them, and we have joining us a man who's done just that. Marty Essen and his wife, Deb, took off on a kind of a midlife crisis uh, trip, it sounds like. Over three and a half years, they did eight trips to all seven continents, and Marty has written a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents, and uh, tells the story with that book. Marty, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Rick. Is it fair to call your uh, series of eight trips uh, a midlife crisis? Yeah, it definitely is. I hadn't done very much travel. I, I hadn't been overseas at all. And as, as I approached 39 years old, I realized I wasn't getting out and having any fun. I was just working at uh, my day job, which is uh, running a telephone company. I'd get out on weekends. I'm here in Montana. We'd go out, we'd go mountain climbing, that sort of thing. But it was great to, to go out and, and see the world. And I didn't plan on writing a book when I started. Uh, we just wanted to get away. We went to Belize and had a wonderful trip. When we got back from Belize, we decided, let's do something a little bit more exotic. And so we went to the Amazon jungle. And just before I left for the Amazon jungle, one of the local newspapers here in Montana asked me if I would write a story about it. I had a great adventure, wrote a story about it, and had people afterwards coming up to me and saying, you know, we really love that newspaper story you wrote. Are you going to write another one? And so I did. We went to Australia. I wrote another newspaper story, had people again recognizing me from my author photo, coming up to me in restaurants or on the streets and saying, we love that. Are you going to write something else? And at that point, I realized I had a book, and uh, yeah. we ended up doing all seven continents. Well, I think part of the advantage you have is you hadn't traveled very much because there's a freshness and, a, and an exuberance in your writing that really comes across. I mean, Thank you, yes. Yeah, people who have traveled a lot kind of reminisce about how fresh everything was on the first trip, and your story is just like the whole world embraced on, on this first-time adventure. Definitely. And you didn't plan to write a book in the beginning. Were you taking notes or were you keeping a journal? For the first chapter, which is Belize, I had no idea I was going to write a book or write a newspaper story. So for that chapter, what I had to do is my wife and I got together and we'd recall, look through all the photos. I'm a photographer, so mm -hmm. I had a ton of photos, and that brought back all the memories. The second chapter and the third chapter, the Amazon and Australia, I was writing for the newspaper, so I had all the notes from that. And when I went back and put it into book form, I just expanded those two chapters and put a lot more humor into it. From then on, I had notes uh, on all the travels. Now, you have a, a real passion for animals, it seems like. There's beautiful photographs in your book. I see you feeding this silver wallaroo with sort of the dreamy-eyed, loving touch of a, like a mother. <laughs> You're looking right into its eyes. Do you have a special affinity for animals? What's the deal there? I've always loved animals. Uh, when I grew up, I wanted to be a herpetologist or a zoologist. And I think it started when I was about eight years old. I had a friend whose father was a zoologist. Down in his basement, he had all these cool creatures. He had a, a Gila monster, and he had snakes and, and all sorts of different things. And we weren't supposed to go down there, so of course we did. And we'd sneak down there and look at all these different animals. And ever since then, I've just had this love of animals. And uh, even though I went on and ended up having a business career, I never left that love of animals. But I think you've got sort of a guy's love of gross animals and scary animals. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's, you, you mentioned rather than stomp on a spider, you'd feed it. Oh, yeah. Actually, that was something that became a game of ours. It started in the Belize chapter. We had this great big spider in the bathroom of this hut we were staying in. And at first I tried to kill it, and then I felt kind of sorry for the spider and, and decided to feed it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of became this joke whenever we would stay someplace and we'd find a spider, we'd feed the spider and try to get it as big as we could before we left so it would be more <laughs> fierce when the next people showed up. So. Oh, there you go. And then you went down to Antarctica and you encountered penguins. Uh, penguins are great. Antarctica was... Just a, an unbelievable trip. So beautiful down there. Was it really worth traveling all those miles and all that discomfort to get down to Antarctica for a pile of ice? Oh, well, it's not more than a pile of ice down there. The penguins, first of all, were great because we had strict rules while we were down there. And the rules were we could not approach any animal closer than 15 feet. But the penguins, of course, didn't have that same rule. They could approach us as close as they wanted to, and they did. We would have little Gen 2 penguin chicks come up to us, and they'd sit and they'd pull on our pants or pull on our shoestrings and that sort of thing. And if we walked away, they'd follow us as if we were mom. Uh, and then we had some great encounters with humpback whales down there, and there's just nothing more awe-inspiring than having a humpback whale come up to you. We went out in, wow. uh, in this bay in these zodiacs, which are basically big rubber rafts, 
and the humpback whales would come up to us just like they were going to touch us. And in fact, there were some people that were in the rafts with us that were nervous that the humpbacks were going to capsize our boats. Right. But they would come right up to us, and just before they touched us, they'd go underneath, and then they'd come back up on the other side with a great big blow. It was incredible. Was it, it was actually playful, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. They knew you were there, and they were just frolicking around and sort of showing yeah. off? Well, yeah, in fact, there were some people who thought you know, there were three three humpback whales, and uh, two of them were, were kind of wondering if they were a little amorous. Uh, <laughs> but it was great to watch them. And when a humpback whale surfaces, their eyes are still underneath the water. But what the humpbacks would do is they would turn their bodies sideways so their eyes would be above the water and they could see us and we could look oh, into their eyes as they went beautiful. right by us. Oh, it was incredible. I'm speaking with Marty Essen, and he's written a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty, before we get away from Antarctica, tell me a little more about the, the penguin poo experience. <laughs> the penguin poo experience. Well, you know, I'm a photographer, and I didn't go to, to Antarctica to photograph animals from standing up and looking down at them. And one of the uncomforts, I guess, of Antarctica, especially when you're in a penguin colony, there's poo everywhere. And there were times I was literally down rolling in the poo to get the right picture. Uh, I had rain gear on, so it wasn't that bad, but uh, eventually I ended up having to walk a little bit into the ocean and, and wash myself off and uh, uh, kind of came up with this little song. If anybody remembers the song Iron Man by Black Sabbath, I kind of made it, I am Guano Man. And so I uh, kind of made, made up a little song about it and uh, okay, I'm it was, it had some fun with it. Sing a little more of it so I can get, get in the rhythm. Let's see, it's I am guano man. Na 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 na. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I'm not so, much of a singer, but. <laughs> no, but you're a better travel writer, so that's good. So, point is, you can connect with nature when you get down into Antarctica. Yes, yes. One thing about travel is it, it helps you get out of your comfort zone, and, and I think you made a point to confront some of your fears. Uh huh. Well, I don't get along well as far as going underneath the water. I, I can swim okay, but snorkeling, I don't do that great. My wife is a great scuba diver, and uh, and that was part of our travels. A lot of times what we would do is we'd have separate adventures. For instance, in Belize and off the coast of Borneo and off the coast of Australia, there would be times she would go scuba diving, then I would go out and explore the rainforest, and then we'd come mm -hmm. back at the end of the day and we'd compare adventures. Boy, that's actually very good advice for any traveling uh, duos to realize you've got different passions and, and different things you really don't care about and uh, have an explicit understanding that, hey, when it comes time for that, you can do it alone, I'm going to do this, and we'll get back together yeah, again. and we both had great adventures. Now, you seem to have a, a real um, interest in just putting yourself in harm's way when it comes to exotic animals. Uh, did you ever do something that was uh, regrettable? Did you have any, any, any real serious problems from getting bit or, or stung by any of these critters? Well, I didn't, I, I don't know that it would say a serious problem, but uh, when I was in the Amazon jungle, my very first day, and the Amazon was something I had dreamed of going to since I was eight years old. We went down the Amazon about 70 miles from the uh, city of Iquitos, and then we went down a South Bank tributary. And when we got out, uh, we stayed at a research station, and we went out on our inaugural hike. And, of course, everything is just, my eyes are just wide open as I'm looking around at all this uh, beautiful rainforest, seeing it for the very first time. And all of a sudden, I feel this pain in my leg. And what had happened is a bullet ant had crawled up my leg, and with its mandibles, it bit me. And then with its stinger, it stung me. And a bullet ant, according to some entomologists, is the most venomous insect in the entire world. Wow. And the reason they call it a bullet ant is because its sting is supposed to feel like a hit from a bullet. And that's what it did. It, it, my, my, my leg uh, was in incredible pain. In fact, uh, for, for about 24 hours, I, it felt like my leg was just going to explode. There was so much pressure in my leg. Wow. Uh, but after about 24 hours, the pain went away, and, and I had no further problems after that. But I certainly avoid it. When you go to a place like the Amazon, you put yourself in harm's way when it comes to dangerous insects and so on. I mean, there's, there's some serious problems that you could find yourself in. Well, yeah, and, and what I was doing is was probably not the smartest thing, but what my goal was down in the Amazon was to find a fertile ants, which is the, the deadliest snake in the Western Hemisphere. It's not the most venomous snake, but it's deadly because its camouflage is so good that it's so easy for people to step on. And uh, these venomous snakes, w they're attracted to villages because a lot of the villages, you know, there's rodents around. And uh, so these villagers will end up stepping on these snakes, and they're far away from any doctor. What happens when you step on it? 
Well, it's a snake's going to defend itself, and the snake's going to bite these people, and and they're walking. What, pardon? Do you die then? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't die instantly, but you would die pretty darn quickly. Just a nice, Uh, slow snake bite death. Yeah. Did you get inhabited by any creatures? I mean, I have heard people say there is actually a little worm in the Amazon that can crawl up, excuse my graphicness, but your urine when you're you're taking a pee out in the jungle, and it actually crawls up the stream and goes inside of you. Well, it happens when you're underwater, when you're in the river. And uh, I read several different accounts of this. And one of the books I have uh, called Smithsonian Animal actually talks about this. And it says that, you know, if you you go to the bathroom and uh, in the water, uh, this uh, it's it's called a canadrew. And what it will do, it will swim up your urine and then up your urethra and then lodge itself in there. And the only way to get it out is through surgery. So this is underwater. So it's attracted to the, it knows the warmth will lead exactly. it to a, a, a body it can inhabit. Uh-huh. And then oh. I, I read another book uh, called The Neurotropical Companion, and he did some investigation on this and could never find a documented case of this. So okay. I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but the Smithsonian Animal Book actually had that in there. So, And I tend to trust the Smithsonian. Well, we've done our share right now to perpetuate that that story, mm-hmm. whether it's true or not. I'm speaking with Marty Essen, and Marty is a rookie traveler who age 40 or 39 or something, decided, hey, I got to get out there and see the world. And he took eight trips over three and a half years, visited all seven continents, lived to tell about it, and tells about it very well in his book, Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty, in your book, you talk about scary animals that actually don't deserve such a bad reputation, like good, evil animals. What, What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, uh, when we were in Belize, uh, my wife and I went into this cave that was filled with vampire bats. You know, when most people hear about me going to this cave with vampire bats, they go, ooh, vampire bats. Well, first of all, the bats didn't attack us or anything. We were able to get very close to them. In fact, I took some pictures from probably about three or four inches away from some of these little vampire bats, and they're, they're kind of about the size of a mouse. But one of the interesting things about vampire bats is their saliva contains the most effective anticoagulant known to man. And so what scientists have been able to do is they've taken this anticoagulant and they've turned it into a drug called Draculin. And now that's being used to save people who have had heart attacks or strokes. So this animal that uh, humans might want to eradicate has actually become a lifesaver. This drug is called Dracula? It's called Draculin, yeah. Somebody had a sense of humor. It's an anticoagulant that makes your blood thinner. Okay. Uh, so if you've had a stroke or something like that, you can, uh, a doctor can administer this Draculin, and, and it'll lessen the effects of the stroke or a heart attack. Or you can just pull out your vampire bat and let them suck on your neck. Yeah, that would probably work, too. I mean, these are called vampire bats for good reason, aren't they? They bite you? Well, yeah, they, they, would, they bite you, and the reason they have the anticoagulant is they don't necessarily suck the blood, but what they do is they bite, they make a hole, and, and uh, the anticoagulant will make the animal that they bit continue to bleed. And uh-huh. so they've taken that and synthesized it into a drug. And there's another example. There's a venomous snake uh, down in Brazil. It only has a scientific name, but it's a close relation to the fertile ants. And scientists have been able to take the venom from this snake and uh, they've turned it into an effective drug for people with diabetes, high blood pressure, and kidney disease. Hmm. So it's another animal with a bad reputation that's uh, become a lifesaver. And it's one of the things I talk about a lot in my book because you never know with some of these animals that people may want to eradicate for one reason or another what good they might do for humans down the line as we learn more about these animals. Boy, there's a lesson there. There's always connections in this fascinating interwoven ecosystem. Tell me about leeches. Did you ever get attacked by a leech? <laughs> yeah, in Borneo. Uh, in basically, every ecosystem that I went into, whether it was the Amazon jungle where we had mosquitoes or it was in uh, tsetse flies in Africa, almost every area we would have some type of annoying bug or insect that we had to deal with. And in Borneo, it was land leeches. Uh, Sometimes they're called tiger leeches or uh, rainbow leeches. And the leeches, just like the vampire bats, inject an anticoagulant. And they would crawl along the ground, and usually you wouldn't see them, and they'd uh, somehow get into your socks. Mm. And uh, they'd inject the anticoagulant, and either they'd drop off or you'd finally notice it on your ankle, and you'd pull it off, and you'd start bleeding. So part of backpacking in Borneo was just knowing that you were going to walk around with bloody socks all the time. 
Uh, but of all the annoying creatures out there, I think they're my favorite because they, they don't carry any diseases. Their bite doesn't hurt. And the, and the bloody socks is just kind of a souvenir. You, you know. Yeah, the bloody socks is a souvenir and it makes a good story. But uh, sure does. You know, they're, they're really not that, that big of a problem other, other, than, other than the fact that they make you bleed. What's with your hippo experience in Zimbabwe? Well, with hippos in Zimbabwe, they're they're kind of goofy-looking animals, and they make this noise. Goes, <laughs> and generally, hippos make me laugh. But that's when I'm unsure. What my wife and I ended up doing in Zimbabwe, we went down the Zambezi River. And the Zambezi River is in between Zambia and Zimbabwe. And we had this three-day canoe trip. And the Zambezi River is about about a mile across. And as we started going down the river, we were very nervous. We were with a guide who had told us we would pass approximately 1,500 hippos along the way. And the f- at first we ran into, we'd see this barricade of hippos across the river, and we wonder, how are we ever going to get past these hippos? Well, as we would approach, the hippos would eventually go underneath the water, and we would canoe right over them. Uh, there's nothing more nerve-wracking than canoeing over hippos for the very first time. And then once we got a little farther down the river, we hit an open spot, and we thought, okay, we, we can relax now. There are no hippos around. My wife was canoeing in the front of the canoe. I was in the back of the canoe, and we're right along shore. And the water is kind of deep here, but we're not quite sure how deep it is because you can't see very far down in the water. And we, we feel this bump, and we think, well, maybe we hit a rock. Well, next thing we know, we're six feet up in the air. If you can imagine like a front-end loader, picking up gravel and dumping it into a truck. That's what the hippo did. It came underneath us. Its lower tusk went through the bottom of the canoe. Its top jaw was so big it came over the gunwale of the canoe, broke the gunwale, lifted us up, and then dropped us on shore. And thank God it dropped us on shore instead of in the water with the crocodiles. And uh, my wife hits the ground with a thud, and, and I hit the ground. And I think my wife at that time, the first thing I think is my wife is dead. And I run up to her, Deb, are you okay? Are you okay? And she gets up, and we wheel towards the water, and the hippo drops the canoe and sinks back into the water. And when we realize we're going to be safe, we look at each other, and we break into hysterical laughter. Oh, my goodness. You had a little <laughs> brush with death, and it turned out to be a happy travel memory. Yeah, it did. Uh, you know, very few people have ever <laughs> survived a hippo attack, as far as I know, and it was oh, it was man. an incredible. What adventure. a souvenir to be able to tell that for the rest of your life. Yes, we th- we think what actually happened is we were right next to a track where the hippos would come out of the water, mm. and I think what happened is a hippo had came up underneath and hit its head against the bottom of our canoe. That was that first bump, and we think it probably had a temper tantrum. And uh, just like something, you know, you hit your head on a, on a pipe or something, you kind of have a temper, temper tantrum. That's what the hippo did. Wow. And it just uh, got, got us out of its way. There's more adventure travel coming right up. Plus, we take a look at the irreplaceable vanishing places we're at risk of losing around the world. We're exploring and celebrating the wonders of our planet. Happy Earth Day from Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Marty Essen, who spent uh, three and a half years, eight trips, uh, having what sounds like a travel experience of many lifetimes. Marty, did he ever figure out what all eight trips cost you and your wife over the whole experience? Just well, I, I had a lot of frequent flyer miles. So if you converted the frequent flyer miles into, into money, right. it would probably would have been about $100,000. So eight trips, you spent 100000 And you went to all these exotic, incredible places from Borneo to Antarctica to the um, upper reaches of the Amazon. Sounds like a, a great, great period in your life, three and a half years. What did it teach you about just about America? You, you saw America from every different perspective, it seems like, or so many distant perspectives. How did that affect your understanding of our, our country's place on this planet? Well, you know, first of all, what, what a small planet we do live on. And the timing of my trips was unique, and I could, could have never planned this, but we ended up, for instance, leaving for, to Belize on George Bush's inauguration day. So that kind of starts at three and a half years. And then later on, when we end up going down to Antarctica, we go on a boat with people from 14 different countries, and we'd leave uh, the southern tip of South America. We'd leave Ushuaia on the day after the world's largest anti-war protest. And we're going down there with people from Germany, from Czechoslovakia, uh, from uh, France, uh, from Mexico, people from 14 different countries. And we're all wondering, you know, we can get along. 
you know, why can't our world leaders get along? And we also had the awful feeling of being away from communications and knowing that we could come back and find the world at war. We were gone for about two weeks. You know. And then the next trip after that, we end up in Malaysia and Borneo, and Malaysia is a Muslim country, and we land there the day after Saddam Hussein's statue came down. Wow. So, and then we ended up in France at the, when uh, Freedom Fries and Freedom Toast were in the news. So we hit all these places just at that certain time in history. Poignant time to be away from home looking back at home. It really was. And one of the things that I thought was real interesting is I talked to different people. I probably talked to people from 25 different countries during my travels. And I was always amazed at how much they knew about America. In fact, I think they know more about America than Americans know about their own country. They would be able to talk about a certain senator or, or a certain politician huh. from the 60s that wow. I wouldn't even know. I was just, it would amaze me how much they knew about us. And a apart from, regardless of your politics, uh, how did they accept you as an American? Did you feel the heat for their feelings about our foreign policy, or, or did they kind of cut you some slack? No, I didn't feel any heat at all, which, which surprised me, especially when I went into, into Malaysian Borneo. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of curiosity. Uh, but they seem to be able to separate the American government from the American traveler. And so I never had any problems at all. People treated me, whether I was in France or wherever, people treated me with respect and, and with kindness. That's a great thing. I found that in my travels also. Marty, also, you did a lot of um, stressful things with your wife. Uh, how did it affect your relationship? Oh, I, I suppose it made it stronger. My wife is just one of the bravest people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, nothing seems to scare her. And uh, I never realized just quite how brave she was until we started traveling. So you um, learned so about her. You learned more about her by going through this uh, exotic travel ringer with her over these years. Oh, absolutely. And then when you finally got back to Montana, uh, just to Marty Essen, who hadn't really traveled much at all, you're back in Montana. Are you in any sense a cultural hybrid now? Uh, what kind of culture shock in reverse did you experience? Culture shock in reverse. That's a tough question. I guess the, the main culture shock is I want to get out there again, and I'm so anxious to visit other places. It gets in your blood, as you know, and I can't wait for the next trip. And I guess things seem kind of tame coming back to Montana. Boy, it's been great talking to you. I've been speaking with Marty Essen. He writes a book called Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. Marty, I'm sure you're going to have some uh, great travels to report on in the future. Thanks a lot for sharing with us, and best wishes. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. You bet. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I want to talk about vanishing destinations. Travel writer Michael Shapiro has done a little research in that regard, and we're going to talk about just that, places that you better see now because a few years down the road, you won't be able to see them. Michael, thanks for joining us. Oh, sure, Rick. Thanks for having me with you. I didn't realize how many places are actually on the uh, sort of endangered lists, and there's actually a, an organization, the World Monuments Fund, that tracks this, and they keep a list right. of Right. Every 100. couple of years, every two years, the World Monuments Fund puts out 100 places around the world that they feel are in imminent danger of either being destroyed or being overrun, and, and sometimes it happens. Remember uh, in Afghanistan when those giant Buddha figures were destroyed by the Taliban at Bamiyan, and... And places do vanish. It's hard to believe sometimes, and it's hard to accept, but a lot of attractions around the world are either threatened by climate change, they're threatened by looters, uh, they're threatened by just being loved to death by too many tourists coming and wanting to see them. And if that's not limited, over-visitation can be a threat yeah. as well. You know, I, I perused that website. It's really quite good of the 100 endangered sites. Right. The website is simply wmf.org for World Monuments Fund, wmf.org. What struck you as particularly interesting, Michael, as far as uh, these endangered destinations? Well, what really struck me is how the world is constantly in flux and changing and that you never know really what could happen next. And, you know, one thing I think is especially poignant aren't just the places, but other tourist attractions, for example, the mountain gorillas in Central Africa and, you know, in the, in the region of the Congo, where there's only a few hundred of these beautiful creatures left. And that's really a dilemma. Do you go see them? Do you just leave them be? And in some ways, tourism can actually help threatened wildlife populations, such as the cheetahs, that if game parks are created, then, then they have more of a chance. And 
in some cases, there's just nothing you can do. I wrote a similar story a few years ago, also for the San Francisco Chronicle, and a couple of the places on there were rivers, uh, you know, the the China Three Gorges area and the Bio Bio River in Chile. And the Bio Bio still exists, but it's been dammed in five or seven places, and it used to be one of the world's great river rafting adventures. Yeah. And now you can still see the Bio Bio, and you can even maybe get in a boat for a couple hours here and there, but you can't do a seven-day trip on the Bio Bio anymore, at least not, not covering any distance. And, and it's sad. It's not just sad for travelers who want to see the river and enjoy it. It's sad, most of all, for the people who made their homes, the indigenous people who lived along the banks of this river and have been relocated and it's happening in China to a to a huge degree in the Three Gorges area to build this this massive dam. So it's human effects, it's also natural effects. It's well, I was perusing before we started talking and one of your readers sagely wrote in saying if you want to see snow atop Mount Kilimanjaro, don't wait too long because every year the snows of Kilimanjaro are receding. Well, so I think it's, we got you know we got Jonathan on the line right now I think from Colorado Springs. Uh, Jonathan Hi, how's yeah. it going, Rick? It's going good. Thanks for your call. Now, uh, what is what is your thoughts on this uh, vanishing places? Well, with uh, a lot of places we've traveled, uh, I keep putting it off, but uh, I think for my 30th birthday, I want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro and actually want to see it with the snow on top of it before it just becomes bare like all the Colorado mountains in the summertime. So, <laughs> so there really is an um, undeniable change in uh, sightseeing as far as glaciers go and climbing mountains and enjoying the snow-capped peaks and so on. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, especially in Colorado, we've had all these, uh, you know, just the local change of weather. You know, we've had drought years, and we've had a lot of snow up in the mountains this year, but it's really kind of uh, kind of hit and miss, just kind of, you know, short-term local uh, changes in weather. I think uh, experts at Glacier National Park actually have, have figured out what year they figure the last glacier there will vanish, and they'll have to rename the park. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a kind of a sad thing. I know my friends in Switzerland lament the fact that there's no more uh, summer skiing on the glaciers as there used to be. That used to be a big deal for tourists in Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, uh, in related comments, Sherry from uh, Rivers Junction, Michigan, writes and says that the the glaciers in Alaska are vanishing. Bobby in uh, Alamo, California, she said uh, she's seen uh, glaciers dramatically receding uh, in in the Alps. That's sort of a, a stark fact that there's a, a reason to get out there and see these things if you want to. What other um, climate-related uh, changes do we have? We've got, uh, Michael, there's uh, some island nations that literally are five or six feet above sea level, right? Right, and, and every year they're getting closer. And, and some when you see something like Tuvalu, the South Pacific island that's barely above sea level, uh, starting to disappear, it's, it's, and the Maldives, too, near India, it's just we're in a situation where people are having to make decisions. And Tuvalu is an in- interesting case because they actually have the ability to buy real estate elsewhere this is sort of a, a, a tangent, but a few years ago when all the countries of the world were designated two-letter internet, sir, you know, like the UK, it's .uk, and right. Tuvalu was .tv for their web domains, .tv. Well, that became very valuable because lots of people in the U.S. wanted the .tv domain, so they sold the rights to .tv for huh. $45 million dollars. Is that right? Because I've seen .tv on web addresses, and that's actually the national uh, suffix on the Internet for Well, Tuvalu. it was, right, Rick, and then they sold the rights to it, and so I'm not sure what their new uh, web suffix I think, is. I think it's UW. Uh, oh, okay. Underwater. <laughs> well, it could be soon, but... Um, yeah. Well, there's 11,000 people on that island, and apparently they're actually now figuring out how they can evacuate and move to islands nearby, apparently to save their culture, but right. go to places that won't be submerged. And what was the other island nation you mentioned, Michael? Well, I've heard that the Maldives are threatened, too, uh, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. I haven't done much research on mm-hmm. that. But, you know, several of those South Pacific uh, and coastal cities looking farther down the road... Yeah. It's. I think about places such as Venice that if you haven't seen Venice, don't wait too long because although they're mm. protecting it, we thought they were protecting New Orleans too. And yeah. you know, and that's one of my travel regrets is I was hoping in the last couple of years to get to New Orleans and I always thought, well, it's a busy time, I'll go next year. You know, I was just in Venice and the city re- continues to sink, but what they do every, every so often is add another layer of pavement to St. Mark's Square. Right now right. you go there and it's cordoned off and they're literally, uh, they take off, um, they don't add another pavement, they take off the top layer of bricks and then they add sand below that and then they relay the bricks and it's about six or eight inches higher and that'll put off the eventual submersion of the main square for a little while longer. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for your call. 
Well, thanks, Rick, and you guys have a great day. Okay, and uh, Lisa's on the line in Arkansas. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Thanks for your call. What are you thinking about in the uh, in the in the area of vanishing places? Well, first I was going to make a comment, and then I was going to ask you a question about some of the towns that you uh, would recommend. Um, my comment was on the Ozark area uh, in Missouri and in Arkansas, and there's so many uh, things that I don't know how much longer that people will still keep up doing the, you know, things like uh, the crafts that were done a long time ago and uh, the, you know, whittling and things like that. And there's a little town called Mountain View, and it's a little treasure of a town. It's in north-central Arkansas. It's about a two-hour drive northwest of Memphis. And there's a place there called the Ozark Folk Center. You can watch people making baskets and brooms, and there's a sarga mill, and uh, you, people be whittling, and uh, like like what uh, what Mr. Clampett used to do on the front, you know, the front of the house. Oh, right. And so that was, uh, you know, whittling uh, mm-hmm. wood. But anyway, uh, this place is wonderful, and it's in a beautiful area. So, Lisa, what is the name of that town? It's called Mountain View. Mountain View. And there's a mountain. (laughs) Uh, You can see this little, it's probably more like a hill, but it's, you just can't get away from it. It's so pretty. All around you see it, and it's a big fishing area, but, and it just looks like you stepped out of a time machine, you know, went back. Let me get that clear, Lisa. Is that actually a museum, or is it a town? It is a town itself is what I was calling it as being a vanishing place. It's Mountain yeah. View, Arkansas. The town itself is very charming. It looks, you know, very old-looking. But the place is called the Ozark Folk Center, and it is in the little town of Mountain View. Okay, because that's a, a problem all over the world as the modern world rampages through. Uh, traditional uh, folk cultures are endangered. And thank goodness, if they're going to become uh, extinct, they're going to be kept alive in these museums. That's one of my favorite uh, sightseeing attractions all over the world is the open-air folk museums where they keep the traditional crafts uh, alive. And you can see those all over uh, Europe as, as well as in places in our hemisphere. You know, it's kind of like the Polynesian Center in, on uh, Oahu. It's just... Uh, you know, it's, it was a lifestyle 100 years ago, and it's kept alive right. in a museum today. Or even on Bali, where they do the traditional dances, but they do them primarily for the travelers right. who come to visit. And some people say, well, at least they kept the dances alive. But, I, you know, I think it's a different thing when you're performing for your visitors than when you're performing for your own people and yourself. Well, there's the vanishing sites whole idea, because it's no problem to see these traditional dances in touristic sort of parks, but to see them actually done for local people for the actual purpose that they were designed to do, that's what's rare. And when you find that as a traveler these days, you've stumbled on something quite nice. When I was in um, Papua New Guinea, I hit it for that annual festival where all the tribes people come together for their giant sort of clan gatherings. And I tell you, there's a few uh, photographers there and a few tourists, but uh, the local people far outnumbered the tourists, and it was definitely a gathering for the locals. And to, to witness something like that really really is a great experience. Yeah, it's exciting. We had a similar experience in December. We were in a little town called Todos Santos in Guatemala, and on New Year's Eve, all the horsemen from all over the region come hundreds of kilometers, and dozens of them, they go to these parties, they drink all night at 8 in the morning, they get up on their horses, and they have a track right down the center of town, and they start racing down the track, and some of them are so drunk they cannot physically stay on their horses. We saw a couple guys topple off. Luckily, they were okay, but, but, you know, my couple of friends and I were among the only travelers there. It was hundreds and hundreds of local people, you know, on the rooftops and watching this whole spectacle, and it was, it was really exciting. Wow. Hey, Lisa in Arkansas, thanks for your call. Thank you. Have yeah. a good day. Happy travels. It's amazing the, um, the breadth of places that are vanishing. Down in Antarctica, uh, you know, Sir Ernst... Um, Ernest Shackleton's hut, I saw uh, that, yeah. And uh, to think that that was there uh, 100 years ago, and it's in in, uh, literally risk of blowing down. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, Mexico City has this historic center, which is apparently one of the the greatest centers for colonial architecture, and it's sitting on shifting land, and there's lots of pollution, and it's just getting squeezed by 24 million people in Mexico City who are sucking up that aquifer, and uh, things are settling, and, and that's in danger. Even in Britain, we've got a, a case where a lot of charming little village churches, uh, the population in these towns is going down, and, mm-hmm. and uh, there's uh, less people worshiping in the churches, and they're just being shuttered up, and, and that's a great loss. And what, just what on a similar topic to something you mentioned a moment ago uh, about irrigation and, and how draining an aquifer, an aquifer can change uh, what's on top of it, the World Monuments Fund also had a selection for the West Bank of Luxor, all these tombs and shrines, these ancient Egyptian treasures, which are not just threatened by over-tourism, but they're threatened by agriculture and water use. And, and when the Aswan Dam was built, it changed the whole relationship to water 
and land in that region. And because they're draining this aquifer and they're spreading agriculture closer to these places, there's salt saltwater encroachment, and it seems like they're having all sorts of problems that you know these places survive for thousands of years, mm. and then the human impact is what's ultimately taking the most severe toll. Yeah, it is fun when you read this list to find out all the different things that take a toll on these uh, precious parts of our heritage. Segovia has this incredible Roman aqueduct, and it's 2,000 years old, and it was actually bringing water into the city until uh, modern times. Mm. It's been uh, deteriorating because uh, there's actually plants growing in it and, and birds nesting in it, and masonry is certain, starting to deteriorate, and there's a lot of pollution there. Um, Aphrodisias, one of my favorite sites in Turkey, is on the list. It's been recently excavated, and they uncovered it, which is great, and then they ran out of money, so they can't do anything with it, and now it's being uh, vandalized and uh, exposed to the uh, elements, and and this is a problem for some of these 2,000-year-old bits of of European heritage. So, Mm -hmm. all over the place. You know, uh, a fascinating other member of the list is the entire country of Iraq. Right. What do they say? There's 10,000 sites uh, there all over the country that go back to the days of Babylon and Assyria and Sumeria and so on. The very first writing was done there and King Hammurabi with his first law code and, and the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Oh, we've probably read about the ziggurat, that crude sort of early uh, kind of Mesopotamian version of a pyramid at Ur. All of these things are subject to looters, to uh, vandalism and of course shelling during all the uh, conflict there. And we saw it with that beautiful mosque, you know, with oh, the gold yeah. domes that was destroyed and that's not something that you can replace so quickly. No. Well, Michael Shapiro, this has been fascinating to talk to you, and I I would like to remind our listeners that if they want to learn more about this, to check out the World Monuments Fund, and they've got a website. It's wmf.org. Michael, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Okay. Bye now. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Todd Clark at Clear Channel Missoula for engineering help today. You can post your comments on this program and share travel tips with other listeners. Plus, find links to our guests, audio and video podcast features, and submit questions for Rick. Look for the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.